Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of September 11th, 2023. After years of hearing complaints about light rail security, one Phoenix council member wants to consider barriers to keep out people who don't pay fares. Christina Estes reports on the problems and potential solutions. Welcome to this historic day in the city of Phoenix. In March 2016, Phoenix and Valley Metro celebrated the opening of the Northwest Extension, three miles along 19th Avenue between Bethany Home and Dunlap. Everyone's very excited. One year later, at a community meeting, the comments were much different. Had I known then what I know now, I would have fought this tooth and nail. Not long after light rail came to 19th Avenue, Phoenix police started getting more calls, mostly trespassing, shoplifting, and stealing. In late 2016, cops conducted a crime suppression pilot program. But a few months later, resident Mark Jacobson saw little improvement. I'm tired of riding on filthy seats with drug addicts shooting heroin next to me. At that meeting in 2017, the city's transit director said, That's really important to us to make sure that we're hearing what you all need. Two years later, while running for city council, Betty Guardado heard about it. That was one of the big concerns, and we're talking 2019. Now, four years after being elected, and seven years after the 19th Avenue extension, Guardado is hearing much of the same. The latest frustrations expressed last week to the city's public safety subcommittee. Security on light rail is an absolute disaster. Resident Jeff Spellman with the Violence Impact Project Coalition has spent years working with various city departments and neighborhood groups to address safety. We need to hold Valley Metro more accountable. I feel bad for them. This is a city-made problem that was brought to their doorstep. Jim Waring has opposed light rail during his 12 years on the council. I will say these are things that should have been thought about long before this system was set up. In 2011, three years after the initial 20-mile line opened, Phoenix received a federal grant to create community vision plans. The goal was to guide development to benefit residents and enhance communities along the line. Similar efforts are underway for the extension south of downtown and northwest to the former Metro Center Mall. But there was no federal money to design such a plan for 19th Avenue. Valley Metro pays Allied Universal Security for guards to patrol light rail platforms and ride trains. It's their job to check passenger fares and enforce the code of conduct. Between January and July, Valley Metro said guards removed more than 18,000 people in Phoenix, mostly for not having fares. 25 guards were assaulted, along with 81 passengers. Valley Metro CEO Jessica Mefford-Miller said most assaults were between people who knew each other. The idea that, that you as a customer, me as a customer, would ride the system and be assaulted or threatened uh, is a mischaracterization of the actual experience. Of the roughly 85 guards, about half cover Phoenix. Valley Metro estimates passengers see security on a third of the trains. 50% coverage is their goal. Guards' wages have been raised, and Valley Metro is exploring ways to offer resources to people dealing with mental health issues, substance abuse, and homelessness. The Phoenix Police Department's transit unit is conducting enhanced enforcement for eight days before starting what Assistant Chief Sean Kennedy calls ongoing maintenance. During this phase, we'll look to conduct enforcement at least one day a week. Additional days will be added as needed based on crime data as well as community concerns. You know, we always rob Peter to pay Paul. Councilwoman Gordado wants to know how many people it will take Valley Metro and the police department to fix things. 
She wants to compare those costs with the cost of adding infrastructure around platforms to keep out people who haven't paid the fare. Then everyone keeps saying, oh, it's a lot of money. We cannot do it. It's, it's too much. But then at the same time, we're putting together a plan that's not really going to work. Not because we don't want it to work, but because we just don't have the manpower to be able to make it happen. The financial information will be gathered and the topic will come back to the council. So will community leader Shannon McBride, who shared survey results from 19th Avenue. Businesses and residents and landowners in the light rail corridor of Central Phoenix are asking us to prioritize safety improvements in their community. They're hoping, after seven years, the next discussion will lead to lasting change. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. The ambitious executive immigration plan known as DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is now likely heading back to the Supreme Court. The Obama administration enacted the program in 2012, allowing hundreds of thousands of undocumented people brought to the U.S. as kids protection from deportation. From the Fronteras Desk, Elisa Resnick and Michelle Morisco have this report. One Phoenix morning in January 2013, Jose Patino was thumbing through the mail when he found a thin package from Citizenship and Immigration Services. And then touching the package and it felt like a little card. I just couldn't hold on opening. I'd open it really fast. His first ever DACA card. Uh, and I was just jumping for joy. Uh, my brother was like, what's going on? I told him he was also really happy for me. So both of us were jumping. Uh, and then my mom came out. She was like, what's going on? I told her and she was crying. Um, I was just extremely happy. Patino was part of the first cohort of undocumented people to get DACA. He found out on his 24th birthday. He's 34 now. Honestly, you would have told me that this issue had to be resolved by the time I was this age. I wouldn't believe you. Patino's been in Arizona since he was a toddler. He's seen DACA go through three U.S. presidents, countless lawsuits, even one round at the Supreme Court. This week, U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hainan in Texas ruled the Biden administration's version of the DACA program is illegal. Current recipients like Patino can reapply to get the status and the work permit attached to it. New applicants are still barred. Now the high court is expected to consider whether the program can continue. It'll be the second time since 2020. Julia Gillat with the Migration Policy Institute and Immigration Think Tank says DACA recipients like Patino have broad public sympathy and support on their side if the Supreme Court were to terminate the program. At that point, if the Supreme Court says that the DACA program cannot stand, it will matter a lot for DACA holders who is in office. If the court were to end DACA, it would likely do so in a slow decimation, unwinding it over two years. That would mean an estimated 800 people a day would lose protections. Patino knows those risks well. He says Hainan's ruling wasn't exactly unexpected. The Trump appointee already ruled the Obama administration's version of the program was illegal back in 2021. His new ruling says the same about Biden's version. Still, Patino says it's a painful reminder. Just that you are different and you don't belong here, even though you try as much as you can. It just doesn't, it gives a reminder that you're not at home, even though you want to be at home, but it's like you're not necessarily welcome here. But Patino says it also underscores a vital DACA fact. It was never intended to be a permanent solution. Would-be recipients like Daniela Chavira have been cut off for years. She's the oldest of four siblings and the only one who isn't a U.S. citizen. She tried to get DACA when she turned 15. But September 5, 2017, DACA was rescinded for the first time under the Trump administration, so I couldn't apply. 
The Supreme Court ruled to uphold DACA in 2020, and a new opportunity came in 2021 when the Biden administration reopened the program to new applicants. Chavira raced to send in her application. And I was waiting to hear back, and then they closed it again under Judge Hainan's rule in July. That was the first time Hainan ruled against the program. Chavira's application is one of thousands that's been stuck at Citizenship and Immigration Services since then. So she says watching her opportunity to get DACA close again in 2021 made her feel numb to the program. Seeing the latest ruling now, she feels for the people who have the status, like Patino. But nothing changes for me. Like I said, my faith and hope don't lie there. My faith lies in God. My hope lies in us as a community and like my family, my myself. As for a hope in Congress or the courts, Chavira says, at least right now, that's slim to none. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news. Since the pandemic protections ended, states have shed millions of people from Medicaid rolls, many of whom could have stayed on if they had completed their paperwork. But mailings are sometimes confusing, misrouted, or subject to other bureaucratic errors. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports on Arizonans being dropped and how they can soften their landings. In March of 2020, Congress passed legislation that helped states fund COVID testing, paid leave, and food stamps, but that barred them from kicking people off of Medicaid. As of the end of March, over 93 million people were enrolled in the program, an increase of over 30 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's Jennifer Tolbert, a Kaiser Family Foundation Medicaid expert with Nationwide Trends. Access, Arizona's Medicaid agency, saw its roles swell to 2.5 million, 650,000 of whom likely no longer qualify. Matt Jewett is director of health policy at Children's Action Alliance. They either did not complete their renewal that's due every six or 12 months, or they were over income, but access could not drop them. That bar lifted in December, and access, which kept its data current during the pandemic, wasted little time in reaching out to borderline cases. Jennifer Burns of the Arizona Alliance for Community Health Centers. Access is doing roughly 230,000 each month that are getting a new letter for the first time saying, you are up for renewal, you need to respond. Often automated systems gather relevant data like household income from state files, thereby completing an automatic ex parte renewal. So in two thirds of the cases at renewal time, people get a letter saying, congratulations, you've been automatically renewed. For everyone else, there's a roughly year long unwinding period that varies by state. Some already had a drop list ready to go at the starting gun. We expect the disenrollment rates among these flagged individuals to be higher than what we would see among enrollees who are not flagged. Arizona began sending renewals in February, warning that disenrollments would start in April. Arizona began dropping people who were not completing their renewals or who were over income on April 1. We were one of the first, I believe, five states to start doing that. But the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service also set guardrails, requiring states to meet new reporting standards and to give 30 days notice on renewals. 
Most states grant 45 to 90 days. Arizona can pause or slow renewals for 30 days if needed. That's not something that Access has decided to do or felt the need to do. First to be cut from the rolls were those with incomplete renewals. Nationally, that's a high percentage. 73% of the disenrollments so far that we've seen were due to these procedural disenrollments. Arizona comes in at 31%. The state's large rural and tribal populations pose an additional challenge to timely postal exchanges. If they have to provide any sort of information to access to stay enrolled, they may not have adequate time for people in rural areas or tribal areas where it takes longer to get the mail. But for many, returning that paperwork seems pointless because they no longer qualify, or so they think. Jewett says they might not realize what access counts as income and what it doesn't, or know that their children still qualify for kids' care. The Arizona legislature and Governor Hobbs raised the eligibility for kids' care. So sometime this fall, we expect the eligibility will go from 200% of the federal poverty level to 225%. Claudia Maldonado of the Arizona Alliance for Community Health Centers says engaging with the process can also put Arizonans in touch with navigators. That can happen through her organization or via the Healthy Arizona Plus system, where a joint application determines eligibility for Medicaid, SNAP nutrition assistance, and TANF cash assistance. You know, making a healthcare decision is a big change, and you want to make sure that you have a plan or a program that best fits your needs. And so this huge network of navigators and assisters really solely exists to help the community through this process. Free consultations are available by dialing 211 or visiting coveraz.org. Unfortunately, some of our community members still don't realize that these networks exist, that there are folks that are bilingual, we have language lines. Navigators can help those dropped from Medicaid find coverage on the health insurance marketplace. Some people may have looked at it nearly a decade ago when it did and thought it was way too pricey. And now it may be much more affordable due to increased tax credits. So return those forms. And remember, if you lost coverage because you missed your renewal deadline, you have 90 days after your end date to respond. Nicholas Skirbis, KJCZ News, Phoenix. In education news, many of us take the decisions we make for ourselves every day, from where we live and work to who we vote for or marry, for granted. But for an undetermined number of people across the country, those rights were legally taken away. Stories like that of pop princess Britney Spears and football star Michael Orr have gripped the nation. Many other stories of conservatorship and legal guardianship have gone largely untold. Kirsten Dorman has more. Beth Papp is like many other 22-year-olds. She's opinionated, funny, loves watching shows like Survivor, Trips to Target, and is a huge fan of Taylor Swift. Papp refers to herself as a non-speaker. I want everyone to know him in here. Papp uses two ways to communicate. She selects letters from a board to spell what she wants to say. This one is like a tablet. When Pap indicates she's done, it reads out loud. Sometimes she uses a board made of plastic or laminated paper, pointing to each letter. Then her communication partner, Emily Yulin, reads. They have a lot in common. It's crazy because I do I do this for a living, but um, she's my first client. And... Um, I consider her more of a friend than a client. Pap's mom, Becky King, says that like other babies, Pap began saying a few words at around a year old. And then at 18 months, it just 
stopped. At five, Pap was officially diagnosed with autism. King says that as she grew up, knowing that services would begin to change was stressful. What What are we supposed to do next? Like I still, she still has no way to reliably communicate. So she began looking into their options. Is it guardianship or not? King felt intense pressure to act as Pap's 18th birthday approached. Everyone, including the doctors, said, well, of course, it's got to be a full guardianship. So this is the way you guys should do it. So we just kind of did it that way. Zoe Brennan-Crone is an attorney with the ACLU's Disability Rights Program. She says King's experience isn't uncommon. And on top of that, guardianship is very hard to undo and is very often permanent. King says she's finally able to get to know her daughter. And Pap says that even though she wants to walk back her guardianship, they're close. Spending time with her is my faith. She gets me. King says Pap's voice just hasn't been heard in the Maricopa County probate court they tried to go through. It's controversial because meaning could get lost in translation from speller to speaker. But in a song Pap wrote, one message is clear. Hear me, listen to my voice, I am here inside. I want to be my own guardian. I want to make decisions for myself. Morgan Whitlatch is with the Center for Public Representation. She says this isn't uncommon for people like Pap. People who don't use speech to communicate or have other mechanisms for communication are those that are probably most impacted by guardianship and are less likely to have their quote-unquote voice heard in court. There are guardrails in place meant to protect people under guardianships, but Megan Kramer with the Arizona Center for Disability Law says... Our guardianship code is really dated. There's been more interest in looking at the overall process with fresh eyes since Arizona passed supported decision-making into law this June. Pap isn't giving up. Ever since I started spelling, this has been my goal. So for now, she expresses her feelings through the song she wrote. Music is my voice. And it has been for a long time. It's how I've always communicated, even before I started spelling. Pap says she wants to advocate for others. I want people to presume competence in everyone. Kramer says in Arizona courts, an ADA coordinator works to ensure accommodation requests are met. Often a big part of the labor in getting an accommodation granted is educating the people who you need an accommodation from. And that includes how someone communicates. In Pap's case, her communication method is so new that there's little research on it. Still, her vision remains. Having the chance to make my own decisions about life is the dream. It is as simple as deciding where I want to live and how I want to spend my time. But outside of all that, Pap is just focused on feeling 22, as her favorite artist might say. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. The Interior Department announced Monday new federal grants that may give Indigenous youth public service opportunities on federal and tribal lands in Arizona. Gabriel Pietrazio has more. The Indian Youth Service Corps aims to engage the next generation in conservation, natural resource management, and climate resilience. 
$3.5 million was dispersed to eight tribal-led projects across Indian country, three of which directly apply to Arizona. Navajo and Hopi youth may partake in forestry-related efforts through a $1 million grant to support Wood for Life. Another $300,000 has been allocated to form a Hopi Youth Corps to preserve its reservation's cultural landscape. Plus, nearly $50,000 to fund a natural resources summer camp for 12 tribal communities surrounding the Coronado National Forest. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, SRP has invested $2.6 million to fund 36 research and development projects at Arizona's three state universities. Nicholas Gerbis reports. The public utility says the projects are meant to improve the valley's power system and watershed and to educate a potential workforce on real-world applications. SRP will work with ASU on 24 projects, NAU on 7, and U of A on the remaining 5. Subjects range from wildfire detection to predicting and responding to energy demands. One U of A project involves turning old electrical cables into concrete. Two master's students at NAU are using drones and thermal imaging to seek out leaks in underground pipes. And two ASU projects entail imaging and modeling wear and tear on hydropower turbines at Horse Mesa and Mormon Flat dams. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in KJZZ Original Productions. From the show, U.S. House Republicans are trying to impeach President Biden. Could it backfire in Arizona? Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Three years ago, President Joe Biden made history in Arizona. He was the first Democratic presidential candidate to carry the state since 1996, just the second since 1948. But now House Republicans in Washington are officially opening an impeachment inquiry against him. It seems that would hurt his chances of winning Arizona's 11 electoral college vote in 2024, but nothing is obvious in politics. So here to help us make sense of this latest maneuver by congressional Republicans is our own Ben Giles. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Okay, so I want to start out with just a little bit about what this impeachment inquiry is uh, is all about. Well, the shortest version I could come up with is it's an attempt to tie President Biden to his son Hunter's business dealings, specifically They're trying to show that President Biden benefited financially from his son's business ventures. Mm. But it's important to note that at this time, Republicans have no evidence to support that claim. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has conceded there's no evidence to impeach Biden at this time. But he argues an impeachment inquiry is needed to uncover the evidence that they have yet to find. Okay, so here we go. So I know you've been getting questions from national media since this was, you know, a news story a couple days ago about how all this will play in Arizona, which I think is interesting in itself because it just goes to show how central Arizona is going to be as a battleground state in 2024. So let's talk about the politics here. I, I would assume that this would bolster Republicans in the state. Am I right? Some Republicans, some Republicans only, um, but not all Republicans. And and specifically, we'll talk about this more, not all voters. Um, Here, I spoke with Paul Bentz. He's a local pollster who uh, talked about the the impact that this is having from a Republican strategy perspective. Uh, Instead of moving on from that and trying to give voters something to vote for, Republicans are doubling down on the negative rhetoric and attempting to push this type of anti-Biden message to its extreme end. 
So what Paul told me is that this is a similar tactic that Republicans used in the 2020 election when Biden won and in the 2022 election when Democrats won several key statewide offices here in Arizona, like governor and attorney general. Mm -hmm. This negativity campaign tactic has not worked. And Bence is warning that uh, it's not going to work again. Mm. So this is another issue, it seems, that will only capture the Republican base that's already with President Trump? That's what it sounds like. And uh, that's what Bence talked about with me is the need to capture more than just that base to to win a, a major election in Arizona. Here's Bence again explaining that. There is a strong anti-Biden sentiment along, among the base Republican voter, but it is not enough to win a statewide office. It's not enough to win a narrow race in a contested office. You look at some of these congressional races uh, that are going to be close this time around. It will be really interesting to see how congressmen like Siskamani as well as Schweikert respond to these types of actions. Schweikert and Siskamani, of course, are unique in Arizona in that they represent congressional districts that Democrats are targeting because, in fact, Joe Biden carried the popular vote in their districts in 2020. So the district has shown a proclivity to um, sort of split the middle between the Republican and the Democratic base. So it's almost as if, uh, well, what Bence is arguing is that this impeachment inquiry might put certain vulnerable Republicans in a bind in 2024, mm. right? while it would help the uh, already sort of ramped up Trumpy base it's not necessarily going to help Republicans in those swing districts that Democrats are targeting here in Arizona. OK, so it's a different story down ballot for some of those Republicans who are really trying to walk that line. What has Siskamani had to say about this impeachment inquiry at this point? Anything? So I reached out to his office yesterday and got a statement that says um, in part that Siskamani uh, described the impeachment inquiry as, quote, an important oversight function of the House Siskamani said, we have seen the troubling allegations regarding the president's role in his family affairs. This is a necessary step to ensure transparency and get answers the American people deserve. Um, so showing some support mm -hmm. for the inquiry without, as other Republicans have, jumping to conclusions about Biden's guilt or culpability, since, again, no evidence has been presented by congressional Republicans. I have yet to hear back from Congressman David Schweikert's mm -hmm. office or see any response from him on social media. OK, OK. What about independence, Ben? Like most Arizona voters are independents once again in the state. Is this the kind of issue that will alienate them or do they dislike Biden enough that they might move to the Republican side when this is the big issue? So this is one thing Bent's really hammered on, and, mm -hmm. and everybody knows that you can't win a major statewide office in Arizona, and you can't win in some of these swing districts as well without courting the independent vote. And Bent's told me this is not something that Arizona's independent voters are clamoring for. That is an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Um, he warns that a lot of independents will view it more as a, uh, a political stunt now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be driven to vote for Biden. It just means that they're going to be turned off to the process in general. Hmm. Um, one of the things Ben's mentioned about this negative uh, political tactic on the campaign trail is, while it might hurt your opponent a little bit, it doesn't commensurately 
give you gains mm. in uh, at the ballot. It's not going to increase votes for Trump. It might just slightly de- decrease votes for Biden. He'd rather th- see them talking about issues that are, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Exactly. There are kitchen table issues that uh, political operatives say would be much better for Republicans to be talking about uh, the economy, for instance, inflation. These are issues that can be used to win over new voters rather than focus on uh, attacking President Biden and attacking Democrats. All right. We'll leave it there. KJZZ's political editor, Ben Giles, joining us. Ben, thanks as always. Thank you. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated.